It is a great morning to see you this morning out and uh, amazingly almost all red. (laughs) Uh, Lots of color out there today and uh, we praise the Lord for that. I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Luke chapter 1. We have recounted this morning through our service much of the immediacy of the Christmas message, those moments of the birth of Christ and those moments following the birth of Christ. And we're going to return to those themes. That has been what has driven our entire study on the journey to Christmas all month long that we have been studying both morning and evening. We have been driven uh, to an understanding of these great truths that we've heard proclaimed both in spoken word and musically this morning. And so now we return again to them, and we start here in Luke chapter 1. As we do so, it seems, and just a bit of an introduction and illustration, it seems that the modern version of an evergreen Christmas tree can be traced back to Germany in the 16th century, when Germany's Prince Albert married England's Queen Victoria in 1640. The tradition of an evergreen Christmas tree then made its way to England, and in a magazine article, a picture of Albert and Victoria's Christmas tree was widely publicized in the then beginning to fledgling America where the tradition was embraced. Regardless, the exact lineage of the Christmas tree, we don't know, we're not actually told of those details, but one tradition remains certain. Evergreen Christmas trees symbolize eternal life. Imagine instead of the oak or the Christmas tree, the evergreen Christmas tree, we have an oak sapling in its place. Even as warm as it is outside, uh, that probably wouldn't look very good right now. Uh, One little dangling oak leaf hanging from its branches, symbolizing not eternal life, but as that leaf falls off and litters the floor, something quite different than eternal life. Somehow that doesn't quite fit in the promise of eternal life. And yet, even though the Christmas trees, the evergreen trees that we bring in eventually die, we recognize that throughout the Christmas season they maintain their shape, their color, and they remind us of life promised through the birth of Jesus. Life everlasting. This morning, as we begin to understand Mary and Joseph, we're on that one holy chosen night, that one night when everything that had been crescendoing up to the point in human history of the birth of the Savior has now arrived. Far greater anticipation in the heavenlies than a child waking up on Christmas morning waiting for and anticipating the Christmas gifts under the tree. Can you imagine all of eternity, all of humanity uh, that has passed and is aware of the details, all of those who have paid attention through the pages of Scripture, all of the angelic realm anticipating this day. Christ is the hope of glory that causes us to rejoice today. Let us begin this morning in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have joined the multitudes who have now, throughout the centuries since the birth of Christ, have gathered around the manger. We look in awe and wonder as the shepherds did as we heard their testimony a moment ago. We see the awe in Mary's eyes and we can see that she is treasuring these 
events and all of the details of these events in her heart, and she will ponder on those for years to come. Lord, throughout our series that we have started with Old Testament saints, and we will end tonight in looking into how you view this Christmas morning, we pray that we would be counted among those numbers that look with awe and wonder. Today, as we go back and we pick up some of the accounts of Mary and Joseph and we begin to understand the process of getting to this moment in the last nine months before this, we pray that we would have greater understanding and appreciation of your word. And on this Christmas Eve morning, that we would be those who celebrate with great joy, not simply because a child was born, but because what that child would bring Salvation to all those who would come to know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that if there's any in our midst today that do not have currently this eternal life, that they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That they will believe in the work that this baby would do when he would die and be buried and rise again on the third day. Lord, we praise you for the time we could spend in your word today. We ask your blessing upon it. We know that in the back of our minds, we're thinking of all of the travel plans and all of the places we need to be over the next few days, maybe the last-minute gifts we need. Pray that all of that would be muted as we stand in awe before the manger this morning. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor. And it's in the name of this child who is Christ that we pray. Amen. As we look into Luke chapter 1, we rejoin the account of Mary and verse 26 as she is the first to know the scripture says in Luke chapter 1 verse 26 in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary and he came to her and said greetings O favored one the Lord is with you but she was greatly troubled at the saying tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. On this announcement day, Mary has been greeted with this angelic announcement. The angel comes to the virgin girl Mary, who is betrothed, the text tells us, to Joseph. The angel, as we have seen all throughout the Christmas season, is Gabriel, as he is the one who came to Zechariah, and likely the one who visited Joseph in the dream later on after this event. And he was the one likely who proclaimed the truth of the birth of the Savior to the shepherds. The angel is identified as Gabriel. This betrothal period is something that we remind ourselves of because we know it, but in reminding ourselves, we recognize that this is more deep, this is uh, more serious than an engagement that we have in our culture today. If a couple is preparing for major, uh, for marriage, they will become engaged and begin the process of wedding plans and details and anticipation of this day of celebration in marriage. 
But for Mary and Joseph, the process was similar, but somewhat different, where the engagement process was instead called a betrothal period. And the betrothal period was a year long. And it wasn't anticipation of the marriage day only. It was that. But it was an anticipation of the house being made ready. And so the bridegroom would go off and he would begin to prepare the house where once the wedding feast had commenced, he and his bride would join together in the home. He would meet her halfway. And this is a beautiful picture of what Christ has illustrated for the church. In John chapter 14, if he goes away to prepare a place for us, he will come again and take us unto himself. That is the image of what the betrothal period is. But the betrothal period has significant strings as well. When you become betrothed, you are legally, by the law of the lands, uh, connected together, married, but without all of the extra benefits of being married. And so in order to break the betrothal period, there would need to be legal action, a divorce, and so that becomes very important as we understand the entire process as we will look into Joseph later. But we're reminded here in Luke 1 that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And so that is the relationship that she is in with Joseph. She may not have seen Joseph for a number of weeks, maybe even months to this point. The angel comes and identifies Mary as the favored one. And as often is the case, we analyze and we dig deeply into each and every word that is in the Christmas narrative, and sometimes we do so at our own chagrin, our own error, because we start to add things to the text that are not there. We're going to pick on a couple of those this morning, and one of them is there is this tendency to elevate Mary beyond who she really is. Mary is called the favored one, which simply means she's the one chosen by the Lord for this task. She's the one that God has chosen. She is a, a righteous young lady. We see by her actions and her obedience. In an age which Israel has largely turned from the things of the Lord, Mary does stand as different, distinct from those in the culture. But it does not mean that any other blessing or any other status is given to Mary other than she is the one that the Lord has chosen to carry the Holy Son of God, which is favored. This Holy Son of God would be born of Mary. And it is important that Luke, the doctor, is the one who describes these events for us and describes the conception and all that will take place between now and the birth of this holy Son of God. Mary, betrothed to Joseph, would qualify Christ to be the promised King of Israel to sit on the throne of David. So not only do we have the details of the conception, but we have the details of the role that Christ will play. And listen again as the angel declares this, as he says to her in verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Imagine for a moment that you are Mary receiving this information, and the long-awaited king of Israel has been revealed 
And not only has the long-awaited king of Israel been revealed, but the angel reveals that the child that Mary is going to conceive supernaturally by the work of the Spirit of God is going to be that king of Israel. This is a promise and a blessing that had to have consumed Mary's questions, her awe and her wonder, and ultimately, as we see towards the end of the chapter, her worship. Mary worships because of this, and it is important that you and I understand that while we enjoy the Christmas season and we enjoy the gift-giving season and we enjoy the carols that we sing and the songs uh, that we proclaim, we also recognize that there's something far greater than is be, that is capable of our expressions. What has taken place here is that God is going to fulfill the promises of all of human history in this child who is the Savior, who is the King, who is born of a virgin girl. And this, of course, the angelic announcement would produce in Mary questions. And this is something we have observed as we looked first into Zechariah a few weeks ago. Zechariah has questions, and his questions lead to his being silent for the period of the pregnancy of Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. And so for at least nine months, perhaps longer, in fact, the text would indicate that it would be longer than that, Zechariah was silenced by his questions. But Mary is celebrated. Let's look into the reason why as she asks her question. And this question begins in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's question is similar to Zechariah's question that we had studied earlier. Zechariah's question is, how can this be since I'm old and Elizabeth is old? How is this possible? We've prayed for all of these years and this has never been accomplished. We've never had a child, let alone a, a son, an heir. His question caused him to lose the ability to speak until the birth of John. His question, though, was one of doubt. One of, there, this is impossible this cannot happen. This, at this age, at this time? Mary's question is more inquisitive. And it is brought out from, in her mind, in a finite mind, the impossibilities. Not from a place of disbelief, but from a place of innocence. Her question is, how can this be? Because Joseph and I are betrothed to be married, but I have never been with Joseph and I've never been with anybody. How could this be? Her question was not regarding the authority of God to do what he said, but on how the Lord was going to do it. And we see that in her response. Notice as she hears what the angel has said, verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
In our culture, I don't know that we understand the great weights of Mary's words there. The great comprehension that would have been required for her to make that statement. Yes, I am willing to be one found guilty in society because God is going to do a work in me. Her question allows the angelic announcement to proclaim the good news, the great news of God's long-anticipated redemption plan to be unfurled, and her concluding statement says that she is willing to obey. That's what we missed in Zechariah's testimony. It wasn't so much that he was unwilling, but he was caught in his disbelief and could not arrive where Mary arrives in the angel's explanation to her. Mary would conceive in her virgin womb by the work of the Holy Spirit. The humanity of Christ would then be provided by Mary. But in providing that human nature would do so without sin, inherited from an earthly father. God's redemption plan, and listen carefully because this is the theme of the day. God's redemption plan is that the Holy Son of God would take on perfect humanity in order to be the sacrifice for sinful humanity that needs to be redeemed. The reason that Christmas is the great celebration that it is is not because a child came and was born in a manger. The reason for the great celebration of Christmas is that this is the pinnacle point. God has reached into creation to redeem sinful mankind's. He did not leave us where we were. Paul reminds us in Romans that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While you were one who stood opposed to the manger, who would stand opposed to the cross, who would stand opposed to the Creator, the Creator was at work, reaching through history for a child to be born in lowly estate, and the greatest news that could ever be told to the created order. The good news of great joy that you can receive the gift that this child provides. When I, there's something about my nature, I, I don't like to buy frivolous gifts. I'm not that kind of individual. I don't want to give frivolous gifts to people uh, the white elephant kind of thing is fun, only to a point for me. Because I kind of, uh, it's like, what value is these? What are value are these things to others? And so I get stuck. I'm an analytical person. I, I want it to be a value, and I want to analyze things, and I want it to all fit together. That's the kind of person I am. So those of you who enjoy white elephant gifts, amen, praise the Lord, enjoy it. But I am one who says, I, I want to find value in the gift and I want you to use it. And so I don't want you to let it sit on the shelf. I don't want you to, to let it get po- packed away. I'd rather you uh, pass it on to somebody else if that's the way. But when I buy Christmas gifts, I like to find something that is needed by the one that I'm giving the gift to. I want them to use it and find value in the gift. And I want you to understand when it comes to what happens in the manger we begin to recognize that your soul craves a restored relationship with the Creator God. The greatest gift 
that you could ever possibly need was born and laid in a manger and would die on the cross. The child carried in the virgin's womb was good news, not simply because he came, but because he is the exact and only Savior we need. The joy of Christmas is far more than the celebration of a baby born. The joy of Christmas is that the Savior is born. This is the good news of great joy. This is the rally cry, the victory cry that we studied when we looked into the angels the other night. This is the great joy of those truths. This is God's plan laid out. But there's others who participate along with Mary. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we see Joseph. Joseph has the opportunity to be a serious problem in the marriage, or rather in the birth announcements in relationship to his marriage that is upcoming. And so Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The scripture says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, Mary, or when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just, and, and un, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the, prophet had spoken, but what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Imagine Joseph's thoughts. He is away preparing a place for his bride to meet him. He has been assembling a house, preparing the house, assembling a place to work, settling into that routine and that task. He has been saving up during this time so that he can give a good start to his new fledgling family. But then news reaches him that Mary is pregnant. You can imagine the sudden disappointment, frustration, anger that would all of a sudden begin to consume Joseph's heart. And the feelings of betrayal are evident. They're evident because verse 19 indicates that Joseph is contemplating legal action. As in her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He knows he's not the father. He knows that what it will take is a divorce and that that will bring shame and maybe suffering to Mary. 
And so he is seeking to mitigate that damage. But nonetheless, he is planning to divorce Mary quietly. Even in this, we begin to see, despite all of the frustration, anger, and hurt, you can see in Joseph a character, a character trait that we ought to observe. And it is one that we're going to see traced throughout until the very name of the child is given. In Joseph, we observe his humility. Culturally speaking, a child that would be born of Joseph and Mary would carry on one of Joseph's family's line's names. He would go back into his line and say, ah, this is a name that we're going to bring up. Maybe even Joseph as the child's name. But Joseph does not seek his own, as we will see as the narrative unfolds. And the angel begins to remind Joseph not only of the passing the feelings of betrayal, but he reminds him of the hope of glory. And notice what the angel says in the dream that Joseph receives. But as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the prophet, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Coming to Joseph in a dream, the angel reveals the identity of this child as he had done to Mary, he now does to Joseph. And he commands Joseph to name the child not after Joseph's line, but to name the child Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph's role in naming the child is a cultural expectation to follow the traditional names. However, the angel reveals that the name of the child has already been provided, and Joseph must obey because the child's task was not to be born in a manger, but to save his people from their sins. Joseph, like Mary, is told that the child is the one who has been foretold for thousands of years. The one going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the promise that was made to the serpent that there would be one born of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The one that was promised to Abraham who would bless all nations of the earth. The one who was promised to David who would sit on the throne of David. This is the child that Joseph is told to name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Beloved, when we proclaim the excellencies and the wonder of this season, you cannot faithfully proclaim it without proclaiming the excellencies and the wonders of the Savior, the reason we celebrate. The angel provides and proves the fulfillment of the promises that were given to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
So not only do we celebrate the birth of a baby, we celebrate God's redemptive plan coming in the flesh who will save his people from their sins and who will be, according to Isaiah, God with us. So we not only celebrate the excellencies of the Savior, but not only is he coming in the flesh as was told to Mary, but what is told to Joseph is that this child is of the Holy Spirit and because he is of the Holy Spirit, he is the Son of of God. He is the Holy Son of God. He is God with us. We're going to explore this more this evening in our Christmas Eve candlelight service tonight. But can you imagine Joseph now? We took a moment a little while ago to imagine Mary's response. Imagine Joseph. Wait, the one that Mary is carrying is divine is God in the flesh. You and I cannot begin to comprehend the kenosis of Christ, that is, that he took on flesh. You and I spend hours and hours and hours, years, some scholars spend their entire life digging into the kenosis alone. Joseph has one brief moment. As the angel speaks to him and reveals to him that the child that Mary is carrying is not only going to be fully human, but will be fully God. From ages past, eternally existing, he will be God with us. What would your response be? We know Joseph's response because of the text that is before us. We know he responds in obedience. Do you have that same kind of humility? Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's response is one of instant obedience. Joseph doesn't have the opportunity to question. He is only left with the choice of obey or disobey. Forgoing his rights, he obeys the angelic instruction. He keeps Mary as a virgin until the birth of Jesus. And when Jesus is born, he is the one who names the child Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. The response of Joseph is instructive for us in this Christmas. We too must be people more obedient to proclaim the Savior of the world than our own preferences. And this comes very practically speaking as you're out buying those last few Christmas gifts. When you're standing in line and the people in front of you think that, uh, or the person behind you thinks that their purchase is more important than your purchase, tries to cut in the line. Or they believe that you're after what they're after and they cut you off to go grab it off of the shelf. Whatever the attitudes, whatever the struggles, are you one who is humbly proclaiming the Savior of the world rather than your own preferences? Joseph's humble and unquestioned obedience is the only right response. It's the only right response. 
And it's the only right response then to the Christmas narrative, and it's the only right response today to the Christmas narrative. Joseph's limited impact in the pages of scriptures does not diminish his influence of being a man of God at critical moments at the time of the birth of Christ. Joseph stands up when the religious leaders refused. Joseph steps forward when even Zechariah had questions. Joseph hastens his plans, in fact, ceases his plans and calls Mary to the wedding feast immediately. He didn't wake up in the morning and say, okay, I have a to-do list before I can call Mary. He calls Mary immediately to the wedding feast. And then, instead of naming the child after himself, he gives the name of the child that the angel had said. Because Jesus would save his people from their sins. From even before the baby was laid in a manger, Joseph understood the Christmas message, the free gift of salvation. But as we encroach, encroach ever closer, drawing in to the holy night in Bethlehem, let us turn back to Luke chapter 2. Having moved around this text all series long, we draw back to it. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Scripture says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. As time has approached, now we're months down the road, Mary has seen Gabriel nine months prior, Joseph at some time when the pregnancy became apparent, and uh, he has seen the angel in a dream, and now the marriage is over. They have uh, come together as husband and wife without ever uh, joining in the union of husband and wife. Joseph has tended and cared for Mary, and now because of Joseph's line, Jesus needs to be in Bethlehem. Why does he need to be in Bethlehem? Because Micah 5 tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Why does he need to be in Bethlehem beyond that? Because he would come from the city of David, from the line of David, to sit on the throne of David. And so Joseph and Mary, in God's appointed time, arrives in Bethlehem. Tradition paints a picture in our minds of a busy Bethlehem. And we have Jesus and Mary riding in, uh, jo uh, rather Joseph uh, dragging a donkey along that Mary is riding and very pregnant uh, with Jesus. Mary is riding uh, that donkey as well. And we come into the bustling little city of Bethlehem that is filled with all of the descendants of David who are there to be counted uh, for the census. And so in our mind's eye, we picture a very busy, dusty, dirty place, and we picture a grumpy innkeeper, 
Do we not? There's a knock at a door, and out comes a grumpy innkeeper. Come on, I can't handle any more people. That is the image that we have in our minds. But I think that we have been victimized by our intensity to look into the text without its context. When we look into the text, we begin to understand, in fact, your Bibles may even make this notation, but we simply avoid it for some reason. We have in our idea, in our minds, that Christ uh, would be uh, rejected by an innkeeper. Instead, the word for inn, in this context, is actually the, room, the word we would use for guest room. The guest room is full. The Airbnb that you're relative has has been rented out as it were that is the image that we actually have in the text there is a word for in for what we would have in our mind's eye as like a hotel that word is used later in the book of luke so luke is not afraid of using it but he doesn't use it here here he uses the word that is specific for a guest room the idea would be that Jesus, in a very pregnant Mary, would arrive in Bethlehem, and instead of be given, be, being given the guest treatments in a relative's house, was given the lower section of their relative's house. And so it's likely that there was other family members already there, other relatives of Joseph who had arrived who were staying in the guest room, and it was probably very full. And rather than being a grumpy innkeeper, we have a very sorry relative who says, I'm sorry, but there's no place in the house. But there is a place underneath the house where... Keep the sheep and the goats. You're welcome to stay there. That is likely where Jesus is at when he's born. We have this idea that these travelers are coming in and all of these inn rooms were available and they were all filled up and there was no place. But that is not cultural. That is not contextual. That is our culture. It's important that we understand this truth because what Jesus is doing is not radicalizing the family. What Jesus is doing is not radicalizing the industry and making all innkeepers hated from there on out. What he's doing is revealing the humility by which he would come. Therefore, it was likely not an inn for travelers, but a relative's home whose extra room was already filled with guests who had arrived for the census. The first floor of the house was a likely place where the animals were kept. And that is where Jesus, in humble circumstances, would be born. And he would be born at the exact right time. The text for us says this, verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now we could take that 
sentence and say, ah, the nine months had arrived, the baby is prepared now and ready to be born. We have reached the, we have reached the allotted days and hours, but I think there's more to it than this. Because this is inconvenient. Can you imagine how inconvenient this really is? If you've ever carried a child, riding on a donkey just hours before you give birth is probably not very convenient. I don't know. I wasn't one of those. But Mary has ridden into Bethlehem in the pre-stage labor to give birth to the baby Jesus. She arrives probably very near the time of delivery. And when she settled in to the lower quarters of the house, she goes into full labor mode. That seems inconvenient. The location seems inconvenient. But we must understand that the narrative, the Christmas narrative, has not made any miscalculations. When Zechariah was offering incense in a very, very short window of time, Gabriel met him. When Joseph had just heard that Mary had become pregnant and it wasn't his child, there was a very short window of time before Joseph would have gone and made the necessary legal proceedings to divorce what seemed to him to be an unfaithful, betrothed spouse. There have not been any timing mistakes. And there are no timing mistakes. Jesus is where he's supposed to be. When we looked into the shepherds, we understand that he is one who had come out from Migdal Adair, which is near Bethlehem, the tower of the sheep. And he is going to be born in the feeding trough of the sheep. Because he is the Lamb of God, whose name is Jesus, who will take away the sins of the world. Mary goes into labor at the exact right time to fulfill in Bethlehem the passages, the scriptures, and the promises. The Lord's plan for the work of redemption to take place has not been thwarted even by one second. It is at the exact right time. It has not been derailed since then in the thousands of years since the birth of Christ. In the thousands of years before the birth of Christ from creation to the birth of Christ, it was not derailed and it has not been changed in the 2,000 years since. This Christmas, 2,000 more years down the road, the message of redemption because of the birth of this child is just as good of news of great joy as it was in the night of his birth when the angels proclaimed victory and the shepherds worshipped. In this ninth that was 
different. This night that was loud. This night that was boisterous because of the testimony of the shepherds and the proclamation of the angels. It has not changed and the plan of redemption is not weaker. It is just as strong. And it is just as required. And therefore, we along with the angels respond as they do. Listen to how they respond again. Verses 8 and following. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The angel's cry, as we studied, is a cry of victory. It's a proclamation of hail to the King of Kings is a cry to celebrate the overwhelming victory, the birth of Christ. The Savior has come. The angels proclaim the birth of Christ. They are the heralds whose proclamation of the redemption plan of God has shaken the hillsides. As they told the humble and lowly shepherds of the greatest news, of greatest joy that could ever come to humanity. This Christmas, you may be here for the first time, or you may be here for more times than you can count. But let me ask you, Does the Christmas message bring you great joy of good news? It's pretty easy to get busy, especially if you are one who is driven by the busyness. You kind of live off of the buzz of the things that happen. And Christmas is that season where it gives you a timeline, and so all of the concerts, all of the music, all of the gifts, all of the food prepared, You're charged by all of that, and you're so distracted by all of that that you miss. You miss the wonderful news, the birth of the Savior. Maybe you're the opposite way, and all of the hustle and bustle exhausts you. And so you kind of veg. You kind of distance yourself from all of the busyness because there's just so much going on, and In essence, you're napping through the greatest joy. Beloved, this is the time of year where we renew our great understanding of the great news of great joy. The birth of Christ was done to provide us with a sacrifice of perfect divinity, perfect humanity. Whether you're one who's charged by the hustle and bustle or you're one who is trying to remove yourself from those things and take a nap. 
Will you spend time in these moments contemplating that which you will never be able to exhaust? Will you spend time understanding that Christ became fully man while remaining fully God? That you, that you, could be redeemed. Without both, you have no hope in your salvation. Without the work completed, you have no power in your salvation. It is this which we must focus on. And so when we say that the message of Christmas is good news of great joy, let us be those who proclaim the reason for that good news of great joy. That Christ came, born as a baby, in humble, lowly circumstances, illustrating for us what He had already done when He stepped uh, from the heavenlies into the earthly. When He took on the flesh of humanity and lowered Himself lower than the angels, Philippians 2 says, so that He could step in and be your sacrifice. Will you celebrate that truth? Will that be the theme of your Christmas gatherings? Christ provided our sacrifice, perfectly divine, perfectly human, for those who are rebellious enemies of His. That is the joy of the Christmas message. Let me close our time in the Word of God in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this has been a wonderful celebration today and it continues. We're not done yet. We have more to come in this service and we have more to come yet tonight. And so we want to make it a day of celebration, of worship and praise. We desire to do so that in a way, in a manner that would glorify you in every way. And so now as we continue in song this morning, we ask your blessing upon these moments, that your name would be exalted high and lifted up, that you alone would be praised, and that as we reflect on these closing words, that we would be those who will resolve to be faithful in the same manner as Joseph was faithful, to be obedient in the same manner as Mary was willing to be a humble servant, may we follow the examples of this young couple. And may we treat this Christmas in the same way that they treated the first. In obedience, humility, and faithfulness. And may your name be glorified above all names as we lift our voices in praise to you. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the child who was born in that manger. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.